0: I'll shorten to the points. Um, yeah, Second Peter three ten. That's quite an intense passage to kick off this new series. But my name's Josh. I'm the pastor here. Uh, most of our church is led by lay volunteers like Casey. So just so you know, you can talk to me if you have questions. But we have a lot of great people overseeing ministry. So make sure you uh, come say hi to me. We're going to have a newcomer's dessert just in the room right next to the bathrooms over there. Uh, so if it's your first time, pop over there after the service. Me and a couple of leaders will be there to answer some questions. But at Redemption Church, this, uh, this Sunday and the next few Sundays are going to feel different than what you're used to if Redemption is your normal church. What we normally do is we pick a book in the Bible... And we start in it, verse 1, and we walk all, all the way through to the very end. It's called exegetical preaching. We believe that God speaks as you take his whole word seriously, and that's kind of the best way we've found to do it. However, this series is more topical. We're going to talk about specific things over the next couple of weeks, things like gender, things like sexuality, things like uh, how we treat the vulnerable. Uh, and just here's kind of my warning on the front end. What we're going to talk about. Well, will and can do two things in your life. A, get you canceled. Like, what we're going to talk about is the stuff that people aren't really wanting to talk about anymore because you will get canceled in our current cultural moment. So A, we're going to talk about stuff, how to get canceled. B, the other thing, which is more near and dear to my heart as a pastor of a local church, is it's also the stuff that can get you into heated debates, arguments, Even with and maybe especially with other Christians. So we're walking into sort of, it's like when I was dating Aubrey, and you know, you meet, you're like, gosh, she's so good looking, and she said the same thing, gosh, she's really good looking. (laughs) We pray, oh, we got great personalities, everything is just clicking. And then you start to get to the point of relationship, like, oh, we got to start to share some of our baggage. We got to start to talk about some of the stuff that we don't like talking about. And there's kind of a trepidation like, will they still like me after? So as we enter this, we're sort of walking into the hard conversations. And here's my hope as, our, as the pastor of this young church, young in age and young in just life, and we've been around a couple months, is I want us to be deeply convicted and otherworldly compassionate, and that is not the norm in today's day and age. But the way you get there is you open up God's word together, you ask the spirit to be with you. And he does the job of making us deeply convicted and otherworldly compassion where people are like, I just can't pin these people. They're so different. So that's what I want to pray for us. And then we're going to dive into uh, this new series. So let's pray real quick. God, I'm well aware of the topics that we're about to discuss and all that comes with it. I'm well aware of my own biases. I'm well aware of... Um, The blind spots that I'm not even aware of, but I'm also deeply aware of and convicted that my calling is to preach and teach God's word. And our calling as the church is to sit under your word and be shaped primarily by this before we're shaped by all other stories and people and opinions. So God, shape us, like in real ways, make us look different because of this series. So Jesus' send me pray. Amen. All right, so countercultural convictions. Redemption started this before we were even a church. We started back before COVID. We got so, we talked about it. Jesus is the only way. He is the way, the truth of and life. And then we talked about love. And then this little thing called COVID hit and shut the church down. And we readjusted. But now we're cycling back through and we're kind of diving back into the series. counter cultural convictions. And we have membership class this month. We actually start tomorrow. If you want to make sure you sign up, make a note on the, the the comment card there. But in our membership packet, we talk about a lot of these convictions we're going to walk through over the next few weeks. Because as a church, we can't just turn away from all the stuff going on out there. We have to have stuff to say. Not about everything, but about important things. And that's what this series is, is what does the church do with all these sort of cultural things that we are pressing up against? And why do we need this? I thought of a few reasons. Uh, The first is this. The Christian church are the visiting team. We are the visitors. It's not the home field advantage it maybe was in the 40s or 50s or whatever the heyday of American Christianity was. It's not that anymore. We're the visiting team. Which means we have to seek wisdom. We're not the dominant force anymore. Here's the other reason that I kind of mentioned earlier is we are fighting over this stuff in-house way too much. I think it's good to discuss and fight and debate. That's my first I like to hash it out with stuff, but we are just being mean-spirited towards other Christians around a lot of these topics here. We've got to do a better job of discussing this with other Christians, with other churches, with other denominations, with other traditions that you and I maybe would never go to But they're on the same team as us. But then third, as a pastor, like 2 Peter 3.10 is why I want to be talking about this. I just want to read it again. Michaela read it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and all the works that are done on it will be <clears throat> Peter is talking to a Christian church that's hearing all this false teaching about when Jesus is going to come back. And he's trying to clarify to say Jesus is coming back. And when he does, here's what's going to happen. And the, the picture he gives is fire. When Jesus comes back, there will be an all-consuming fire that comes down on this earth and dissolves and exposes everything that's there. Prior to this, we won't get into it, but he talks about Noah and the flood. He's like, it's a lot like Noah and the flood. There was this evil, unrighteous culture going on, and God flooded the world and washed away all unrighteousness. Did he destroy the world? No. He refreshed it and renewed it and cleansed it, and now Noah and this new faithful remnant was there to take over. And one day, there's a fire coming. What exactly that's going to look like, I don't know, but here's what Peter says. Everything will be exposed. Like it is after a fire. And that which is worthy, which is good, which is faithful, will last, will endure the fire. And all that is unworthy, and trivial, and trite, and ungodly, and unrighteous, will be burned up. As we counter culture, here's what I want to do. That day is coming. We live in this current cultural moment. I want us to be aware of this and to live accordingly. Is what we're about, is what we're passionate about, is what we're posting about, is what we're reading about, is what we're giving to, going to last when the fire comes to expose everything? That's the question as the church. Are we being faithful in this very confusing time to what God wants us to be faithful to? Because he says there's a day coming where everyone will know. But as a church, we want to press into this. And then here's how I'm going to walk through just this first discussion. Today is how we are going to counter culture. And then we're going to talk next week gender, then sexuality, then we're going to talk about generosity, we're going to talk about the vulnerable, and we're going to talk about our unique stance on salvation as the church. All these sort of hot button topics. But today is how do we actually counter culture? And here's the image. As I was praying through this message and kind of walking through, I pictured like a house. So the first thing is we all walk in the door with certain assumptions that I wanna just kind of address. Meaning like, none of you are a blank slate that I am giving you information for the first time in your life. You walk in with your own set of assumptions and then you enter in the house, you're standing on something. Like what's the foundation you're standing on, conviction-wise, scripture-wise, doctrine-wise, as you make sense of the world and culture? And then lastly, I want to say, pretend like you're looking out the window. As you think about the future of the church, the church at large, but us as a church as well, what do you envision? Like, how much can we actually accomplish as the church? So as we walk in, we've got assumptions. We're all standing on a foundation that's been laid by others, not just this church. And we're all looking out, thinking about what could be. I want to walk through each of those. As a church, I don't want to pray, and I think God's going to do crazy good things for us. So that's what we're doing. Here's the first one, is the door. What assumptions do you walk in here with? Like, mainly in terms of optimism, pessimism. Like, as you think about the church and culture, how optimistic or pessimistic are you? And just to, like, Remind us that we all kind of come from different backgrounds Here's all the things that could be playing into it Not all, but here's Your personality plays into this Like Chandler Cruz, our worship leader Is the most optimistic man ever Since Buddy the Elf And there's no (laughs) Chandler, how do you think it's going to go? It's going to go great Tom Schrader, who founded this church Was the most pessimistic man I've ever met He would say, the glass is empty and it's leaking out the bottom. (laughs) So your personality shapes this conversation. Here's the other stuff. Your background. Like, the cultural background you come from. Like, this is, I think this will be as political as I get all day, but there's a certain sect of far-right conservative people that I've had to deal with as a pastor in church that kind of drive me crazy. And I was like shepherding them. And they're just, like just so far right on things. And so feisty. And, s- and I like started to just take notes. I'm like, okay. And I realized something. This guy's from L.A. This girl's from Orange County. This family's from Portland. This guy's from Seattle. And I met with a pastor in town who I know is from L.A. And I said, hey, can I ask you a question? Why are your people so annoying? <laughs> He said, what do you mean? I said, I get this sense that a lot of like the really staunchly Republican conservative people in our churches, a lot of them come from the West Coast, California, Seattle, Portland. I said, why are they so like ready to fight? And he says, you guys have no idea how quickly it turns. That's why. And people from Seattle said, amen. Amen. People from Portland said, amen. I'm like, okay. So that plays into it. Where you come from plays into how you view kind of your testiness with the world. Your theological foundations. My wife grew up in a denomination where dancing and movies were illegal. That's going to shape stuff. She's either going to overreact and watch every movie known to man and do every dance known to woman. (laughs) Or she's going to try to put your theological back. Your age plays into this big time. Like the younger people in here, like, how much can you accomplish in the world? A lot! the 50s, 60s, they're like, all right, chill out, (laughs) your age plays in and then just seasons of culture around you, and I got this from Tim Keller, he talks about each culture is kind of in a season, you got a fall, winter, spring, summer, in relation to how friendly the outer culture is to the church, he says this, Christians must know the times and seasons, cultures and societies can be more or less resistant to Christian faith, Wintertime describes a society that is hostile, perhaps even violently so, i.e. Afghanistan. He would say New York. Spring is a situation in which the church is seen by many as dangerous, which may be kind of where we're at. Summer is a society in which the culture has largely embraced the Christian faith and believers can feel pride at home in society. America years ago, the early Roman Empire, Constantine time. And then autumn is a society that is losing patience with Christianity where it's increasingly seen as problematic and so it becomes marginalized. Probably where we're at if we have to pick one. So we all come in with, you see like how complicated this is. And no two minute YouTube clip you send me is going to solve this. <laughs> Created, creativity, curiosity, deep conviction, all that takes time. So here's the, just to land our plane on an assumption you walk in the room. I want to ask two questions to help you understand where you're at. As you think about your own heart, your own mind, your own soul, how much influence can the church have on culture in your mind? Here's the other question. How much good, the theological term would be common grace, does the culture around us have? So how much can the church actually influence the culture? Zero to ten. Ten, the church can do a lot. Zero, don't even bother. And then how much good is there just in general culture? Again, the theological term is common grace. As we sync up with cultural realities, how much good already exists there? Zero? None. It's The world's going to hell in a handbag. Or ten? I think the world's great. So just in your mind, I want you to kind of, this is where I'm at. Just so we have a starting point that's not the wrongness of other Christians, but it is the assumptions that we bring into this discussion. And with those questions being answered, a helpful article one of the pastors sent out talks about here's kind of three buckets where Christians, churches, specific people land when they answer these questions about optimism and pessimism. The first one is this, fortification. Christians build walls. We want to be fortified because we see the world is bad. We don't think the church can't influence the bad, so we build up walls. That's one kind of landing spot for us. And I get people don't want to be put in boxes, but it's helpful to kind of know what box you would have to be placed in if you had to be placed in a box. So, like, who's in this camp? Quakers, people, Amish, certain sects of, like, private school, homeschool communities that I've interacted with have a sort of fortification model. Not everyone. But, you see, bad, we can't do anything about it, let's build up walls. And as a dad of four young boys, I have a wall that's growing in my mind. Here's the next one. Accommodation. The world is good. We can use everything from the world as the church and be fine. This would be the seeker-sensitive church model that got big in the 90s, which means we use the means of the world to speak to them. We use their instruments, their language, all that, which is good. Certain types of parachurch ministries I became a Christian through say Young Life, goes into their world, uses everything in their world to bring the gospel to them. Accommodation is, there's no need for a wall. We, there's bridges that we need to walk across. Or the domination. That's mine. The world is bad and the church can influence it, so the church must go and dominate the evil of the world. And what's fascinating with that one, if that's where you kind of land, is you have opposite ends of the political spectrum in our country, in our moment, both in that camp. You've got the religious right, the Jerry Falwell, the conservative moral majority. How are we going to fix the world? Through political influence and power. And nowadays you have the social justice movement, more grassroots, same goal, we are going to fix this world through our impact and influence on the world. And those two could not get along to save their life. Yet as we talk about Christian assumptions walking into the room, they're kind of seeing the world through the same lens. There's a lot of bad out there. There's oppression and all this stuff, which I agree with. And there's unrighteousness that's even built into the laws, which I agree with. And the way to get it is to dominate. Get into power and change it all. So if you had to pick one... Again, if we were more charismatic, I'd make you tell your neighbor and then slap your neighbor if you disagreeing with theirs. <laughs> but which one describes you? Like, I'm fine with even if the message ended now. Just the conversation that would happen because we had to discuss this in a sort of civil way. But you're building walls, you're building bridges and just letting the world come in and do whatever. Or you're trying to dominate in the name of Jesus. If you had to pick one, I want you in your mind just to have it. Because we all come in here with some sort of assumption. Again, if you're in an RC, you're going to walk through this with discussion questions. But just for your own heart, like, how did I land there? Is it my age? Is it my background? And what's the assumption you walk in with? But we don't just stop with assumptions. As a church, we believe people need to be changed, transformed. They need to have teachings they've learned, re and relearned. It's called repentance. We want to stand on something more firm than just our assumptions we walk in with. We want to be aware of them. We want to stand on something stronger. The last message, so Reese and I led student ministry together forever. I left the church to plant this church and my last message was to my high school seniors. And this was my passage I had for them. Everyone, Jesus says this out of Matthew 7, then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, The floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. More important than whatever assumption I bring, or you bring, or we bring into this discussion, is the foundation we are now standing on. Are we standing on a good foundation? That's the second. What second one is, what's the floor we're standing on? What foundation, scriptural conviction foundation, are we standing on as we enter this room, enter this discussion, enter this culture? Leslie Newbegin is a famous theologian. He's an English guy who went to India for a long time. And then he came back to England and he realized, England is just as much in need of missionaries as India is. Because they have forgotten the gospel that they all claim to know in this church of England that I grew up loving. He says this about it. The choice for the church in every age is going to be this. Will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture? By the biblical story or by the cultural story? So as we now stand, and again, I want you thinking through where you stand and not just giving you the benefit of the doubt. Like, I'm like a C plus. But what foundation are you standing like the most simple way I get at this is I disciple people, as I mentor people, as I meet with people, as I develop leaders, is I ask a starter question to almost every relationship, and usually it requires a writing assignment. I say, "What is the gospel?" When we planted this church, we did some launch team trainings in the fall, and we walked through all these sorts of core elements of church. And one of the assignments I did was, "What is the gospel?" On a half sheet, I want you to answer the question, "What is the gospel?" we clean up the gym we used to meet in, and then there's papers left over, and here's what was just fascinating, and not all that odd, because that's how church works, is I picked up some people's answers, and some people had very wrong answers, other people had very thin answers, and some people had great answers, so I think in this room, like, the, the question is, do I have the wrong answer? Do I have a more thin answer than I should? Or is my answer thick? What foundation am I standing on? No gospel, thin gospel, or thick gospel? Does that make sense? What is the gospel? If I was to give you assignment, and I made you leave it in your chair, would I say, wrong? Again, not in a (laughs) judgy way. You didn't even get the content of the gospel right. Or thin, You've got parts of it, and you're kind of standing on a, like I picture like an attic where you got a beam every so feet. Like, you've got a floor to stand on, but it's not that thick of a foundation. It's not that substantial. Like, your gospel answer isn't the ground you can stand on for all of life's questions, issues, seasons. It's maybe the answer you can stand on to know one day you're going to get into heaven because you said the right prayer with the right content in it. But in terms of parenting, working in a secular vocation, living in a neighborhood, living in a society that is so confusing, you don't have a lot to stand on based off your answer to the gospel. John Mark Homer is this pastor that was in Portland. If you're in your 20s, you really like him. If you're in your 30s, you don't know who he is. If you're in your 40s, you like, what? But he just ended his pastorate in Portland. And one of his last messages was the four American gospels. And he was basically getting at this, like a lot of us have very thin answers to the gospel. He gave, there's the American gospel, which is the John 3:16, which I'll talk about. There's the social justice gospel, which is all about going and doing and fixing. There's the reform gospel, which he kind of talks about sort of arcana. And then there's the prosperity gospel about what's in it for me. But here's the most simple way I can think about it. Matt Chandler has a book, Explicit Gospel, and he skips two views of the gospel. A 30,000 flyover foot and an on-the-ground view of the gospel. I think a lot of us have on-the-ground view of the gospel. It's sort of the traditional way we've heard the gospel presented. God, man, sin, response. There is a holy God in this world who created all things. Man is a sinner. He has messed it all up. He is in rebellion. The only solution, his only hope in life is to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and for eternal life. Do you want to trust in Jesus' response? That's the gospel I received as an 18-year-old. And I think the majority gospel in this room is probably more in line with that. Which again, it's not wrong. It's just thin. Like as you walk in this life, you don't have a lot to stand on that comes out of your robust gospel. You have something that's going to get you to heaven one day. But it, it doesn't always speak to you Monday through Friday. Like, what's our foundation? Here's the other way, Chandler would say. There's a fly overview of the story of scripture that God is writing that he's inviting us into. Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world. Perfect. Heaven and earth united as one. God was with man. Man was with God. All was perfect. And in that, he said, you go now and create more culture. You too, subdue the earth. Create culture. Get out. Make this world just like it is right here in this garden. Do a great job. I'm with you. One thing, though, Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In so doing, when you do, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve, do not listen. They rebel. They sin. And they eat of the fruit. And everything gets broken. Not just the one that the first gospel answers. The separation between God and man. That's part of it. They now run and hide from God. That's our big problem. We are separated from God and we are running and we're hiding from it because we're ashamed. But in that Genesis 3 story, more than that gets broken. Now they start fighting. Adam and Eve start fighting, which just shows how humanity is going to work. There's going to be strife between man and woman, country and country, brother and brother, sister and brother. Whoever it is that's interacting, there's going to be strife for the rest of time. Because you guys are well. More than that, though, this is the one that breaks my heart: is they are now broken inside themselves. They were free, uninhibited, loving life with God, and now they're ashamed. It says they're ashamed. Like all the insecurity in this room, we trace its origin to Genesis three. Every one of us that doesn't feel comfortable and whole in our own skin, me included, it's a Genesis three. Consequence, and the more than that, God says, and also the whole earth is going to be cursed because of you. There's going to be thorns and thistles I was pulling weeds in my yard for hours. That's because Genesis three. There's cancer <laughs> stories in this room. That's because Genesis three. This whole world is cursed. Genesis three fifteen Proto Evangelion, first gospel. God says, but I will fix this through the seed of woman. So there's not going to be a heavenly answer to solve all these problems. There's going to be a very earthly answer. Through the the seed of Eve, there will be born a solution to this problem that will fix it. His name was Jesus. And the whole Old Testament is building up anticipation for this Messiah, this coming Redeemer, the guy who was going to fix the problem that started in Genesis 3. And he comes and he lives a perfect life in obedience to everything in the Jewish scriptures. He was the perfect Messiah, perfect son, perfect brother, perfect everything. And he was killed by the Romans on a cross. And anyone that looks on him will be saved. And he's not done yet. He ascends back to heaven. He says, when I said, I will send my spirit And you will be the church. You will have the spirit. You will be my spirit-filled people on this earth. And you will do greater things than you've seen now. Meaning the story is not done at the cross. The cross is the invitation that gets us into the story. And now we're in the story as the church. Jesus sits on the throne, and one day he is coming back, 2 Peter 3.10, to light this place up to see what really is worthy, and we get to participate in that story right now as believers in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Some of us don't have that thick of a gospel, and that is not an indictment or a judgment. That's just something to be aware of as Christians. Is what we're trying to do is thicken up our gospel. Not add to it. Not change it. Not tweak it. Not change the parameters God placed, But get it in line with all that God lays out in this. The gospel is good news. It's a story we've been invited into. Creation is good. What God created was good. And then sin entered in. And it's parasitic and pervasive. Sin is everywhere, in every human, in every institution, in every government, in every medical practice, in every childcare, in every school, even if there's a Christian on the name, there's sin at work everywhere in this world. And the church is to press into the brokenness of the world, not just the brokenness that involves separation from God and man, but the brokenness that affects all of this. The church is to be pressing in as a city on a hill, salt of the earth. A light on a hill for people to see. We are to press into this story. That's the gospel foundation I want to stand on. And that's the gospel foundation I want us as a church to stand on. And I know for me, it's taken time. This sort of thickening of my gospel took me into my 30s. I became a Christian 18. And the first time I heard a preacher stand up and tell me that this was one story with a beginning and an end, and it was beautiful and better than any movie or story I've ever, I was 28 years old. And I've been pressing into that reality, like, how big is his gospel? It is massive. And it is sturdy. And it's worth standing on. It's worth fighting for. And it's worth preaching. It's worth being all about. What foundation are we standing on? You either have no gospel, Jesus isn't the center of your story yet, And you're going to press into culture the best way you know how, given your current season of life. And that's a scary place to be. Or you have some version of a thin gospel, where Jesus does not matter all that much to the other decisions in life. And I just pray that you would press into deepening your gospel. Or some of us, God has given us a a robust picture of what the gospel is. We stand firm on that. We don't have to look elsewhere. We look here. That's it. This is the foundation. We, everything we need for life and godliness, Peter says, is right here. This is the foundation we stand. With that being said, as we're standing on that foundation, and some of us are kind of aware, like, ah, he's right. My four isn't great. Like Jesus doesn't factor into my fatherhood at all. How I interact with politics, I haven't integrated faith at all in it. But that's where, staying on the foundation, I now just want to think about this. As you now look out, look out the window, envision the future. Like, what do you see? Like, how much can be accomplished by us? Lowly bunch of followers of Jesus in this room in North Phoenix in 2021. Like, here's the picture I want to give us. So I've got kids. And I'm supposed to give an illustration for my kids in every sermon I've been told because that's what you do. <laughs> and I've got kids that vary in their confidence in life. I've got one uber confident kid. And then two kids that are more like me, like, ah. so Jude, Uber confidence. He plays sports, and whenever he gets in the batter's box, whenever the ball is passed to him, he assumes he's gonna hit home run. He's going to sink the three. He's going to do the greatest sports act that's ever been done. In that he has no self-doubt. He's never questioned himself once. He gets in the batter's box, and he is ready to smash. Because he thinks, I'm what this world needs right now. <laughs> I, on the other hand, like baseball, and I was way more like, I hope I don't strike out. I hope I don't strike out. And I see that in other kids. I hope I don't strike out. I hope I don't strike out. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as we think about looking ahead, what can be accomplished? Some of us have Jude-type tendencies. Like, yeah, the world's gonna do a bunch. We're gonna Christianize this whole world. And some of us are like me, like, cynicism starting to kick in, like, I don't know. Is it even worth it? Why bother? Like, some of you in that room are like, it's not worth it. I think the gospel invites us to get in the batter's box and be grateful to be on the team, knowing that we're going to win, regardless of how our bat is. Right. Some of us are going to sacrifice bunt. Some of us are going to swing and strike out. Some of us are going to hit the ball. But we get invited into his story to be a part of what God is doing on this earth as his church. We get to be a part of it. Now, what exactly is going to be accomplished in our lifetime, in the lifetime of this church? I don't know. But I don't want to be overly pessimistic, like, all right, that doesn't matter, or overly optimistic, like, yeah, you know what's been missing in Phoenix? This church! No, that's not true. <laughs> so how are we going to counter culture as a church, as your pastor, as someone who loves you and prays for you by name and thinks about how are we going to do this? I already said this, but here's, I've got a few things. I think it's six or seven. Here's the first one. We are going to preach the gospel all the time. Yeah. Like before we set up committees and drives and all these things to help make this world better. We are going to be a church that stands on the foundation of the gospel. We are going to preach the gospel and its scope and all its beauty all the time. Not as an afterthought, but as the priority of the church. There are a thousand cultural stories and narratives being told. We have the true narrative of the world. And we're going to get up and preach it all the time. And we're going to create ministries and empower leaders that help make that possible. Men's and women's ministry are just led by Greg Cody and Casey, you saw. They're going to start going through the book of Genesis. Why? Because Genesis matters. Because it's the beginning of a story. It sets the stage, the trajectory for all that God does in the world. We are going to preach the gospel all the time. Here's how you can play a role. You've got to learn to preach the gospel, learn the gospel, pick up the gospel on your own as well. I was just up north kind of praying, just being alone with my thoughts, and I read this biography by Eugene Peterson, guy who wrote the message, very smart guy. But he talked about this one interaction with a very smart guy who came to meet him. He's like, how do I do this, Christian? How, what, how do I do this? And it was fascinating his answer because it was so simple and it's what I do which I was like I love the Psalms. He said pray the Psalms every day not like all 150 just pick a Psalm so I wake up in the morning I pick a Psalm and I read it it says pick another spot in the Bible to read and then journal your thoughts for 10 to 30 minutes you do that the gospel will get in here, Eugene in says. Now, I know Christians don't like to get overly dogmatic. And I get that. But until, if you're not currently, like, filling yourself up with this on your own, apart from your spouse or your student gatherer, me as your pastor or whoever, if you're not doing that, I'd encourage you to start there and just see if that works. Because we're not going to go anywhere as a church if we have people that have thin, Fading gospels. Come Gospels. We need a thick, thick, thick Gospel. Here's the next way. We're going to follow in the way of Jesus. Jesus did not build walls. He wasn't a fortification guy. He didn't separate himself from the world. He wasn't an accommodation guy. He didn't go and say, you know what? All this is good. I accept all that's being done in this Greco-Roman civilization. I accept it all. And he didn't dominate. He was killed by the dominating culture of the time. What did he do? The biblical word is incarnate. He was incarnational. What he says to us is you are in the world, but not of the world. You are sent people. You are a heavenly people. You don't belong here, but I've sent you here to do my work. We are going to be an incarnational people. We are not going to build a ton of walls. We're not going to accept everything. We're going to be Incarnational. What does that even mean, though? That's hard. Here's, here's why it's hard. It requires a ton of wisdom that I don't currently have. Somebody texted me a question about uh, this thing in counseling that I had never heard of. It's like, how many different things have come my way that I didn't... hearing about it for the first time have to pray immediately to get any wisdom on what it means to be incarnational? We're going to need a lot of wisdom given to us by God. Here's the thing that I found most painful in my Christian walk. Pastor had a side. just as a Christian is the amount of times I misunderstood by those outside the church but especially those inside the church. Jesus was a friend of sinners, a glutton. Jesus was the most misunderstood person in human history and we are trying to follow in his way which means we're going to be misunderstood which means those of us who really care a lot about what other people think which is most of us it's hard because you'll be misunderstood and here's the reality the culture wins a lot of time. like Jesus was killed he didn't win the way the world counts winning but we are going to be incarnational. Here's the next thing. We're going to try to create better cultures where we can. Before the fall happens, in Genesis, God says, you are to subdue, have dominion, create culture in this world. We are to create better cultures where we can. Like, we're going to be active where we're at. If we're a fitness instructor, we're going to create the best culture we can in the fitness instruction industry. If we're a mid-level management, we're going to take our little sphere of influence and try to make the best culture possible. If we're fathers and mothers in homes, we're going to make our homes the most hospitable, warm environments we can. We're going to create culture wherever God places us. And just so you know, primarily it starts in the home. I don't want great bosses who get raved about by the same kids who say, he's, that's not big dad We create cultures. We're to go into the world and create culture. I read this interesting article about cancel culture. It was on the Atlantic. And the person made the point that a lot of art is being left on the shelf. A lot of manuscripts are being kept in drawers because nobody wants to stick their head out anymore because they fear getting canceled or ripped apart. So he, he was saying, so much good art is being left on the shelf now. Because people are deathly afraid of earthly consequences for saying something that might be misconstrued or heard the wrong way. Christians, the wrath of God has been removed from us. We have nothing to fear. So we can stick our heads out and make art and make things even if the arrows are going to come. We are going to create culture. We're going to take some hits along the way. That's why we have this moment. Come back, we encourage each other, we go back out for another six days and we do it again. Here's the fourth thing. We will be curious about how other Christians are countering culture. This is a current, just pressing, open wound in my life. Of how mean Christians have been to other Christians. Of how judgmental Christians have been about other Christians are doing whatever Christian thing they're doing. One of my friends said it this way, and I think he's kind of onto something. He's like, I feel like people have three buckets. Right bucket... Wrong bucket. Eh, I don't care about it. Meaning, there's stuff in this world, this is right, this is good, that you believe without a doubt this is good. You've got a bucket that says, this is absolutely wrong. Molestation, absolutely wrong. Lots of things, absolutely wrong. He says, but this middle bucket, I'm like, I wouldn't do it that way, but eh, I don't really care. I don't have that. He says, he feels like nobody has that bucket anymore. Or they have it in cultural, the loud culture we live in is yelling at such a intense rate that that bucket is getting trumped down to nothing. Yeah. So now everyone, Christians especially, think it has, well, it has to be right or it has to be wrong. It can't just be, I don't know. Like, I want more Christians and when I ask them something, they say, I don't know. I would love that. It would mean spiritual growth, like beyond the nth degree. Versus, what do you think about? This political party in Uzbekistan. I'll tell you what I think about Uzbekistan. I'm glad you asked. I don't know. Where's Uzbekistan? (laughs) Like a current news article. Harvard just appointed the chief chaplain. He's an atheist. Right here. Two Christian people I respect a lot. Al Mohler, Tim Keller. Al Mohler has a daily briefing. He talks about it, how it's just a sign of the secularizing times. It's a terrible thing. Yada, yada, good stuff. Listen to it if you want. Tim Keller retweets this article from a guy saying, I think this is a good thing, and here's why. Here's what I want for us as a church. Curiosity as to why he lands here and he lands here. Less dogmatic, unthought-through convictions on the front end. Al, why are you so fired up about that? I'm curious. And Tim, why do you think it's a good thing? Well, I think, and the article goes on to say, I think it's going to provide more opportunity for Christians to be on the campus of Harvard than ever before. Oh, I have no idea. I've never gone to Harvard, but I haven't been to both. But, interesting. But more curiosity about why other Christians are doing it the way they're doing it. There's not like a passage that can go to say, "Be therefore there more curious about how other Christians." But it's a reality we're living in that I don't like, and I think the way out is humble, compassionate curiosity. And people say, "Well, you're on a slippery slope." Sure, whatever. Point taken where you're not listening to what I just said. <laughs> be curious. Here's the other thing, and this is kind of related. We will be critical of ourselves first. I remember preaching a passage on Jesus saying, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And I preached a great message on that. <laughs> I got a and I'll never forget, a lady I've never seen before, never seen since, came up to me just in tears. just gave me a hug and walked away. And the Spirit kind of said, she's got to go and cut something off. Like, what if we left church with more stuff to cut off and more stuff to critique? That would be a sweet place to be a part of. I mean, I can be as critical as anyone in this room. I get it. But even Paul in Corinthians, he's like, talking about sexual immorality. He's like, you shall not be around the sexually immoral. But let me tell you this, not the sexually immoral of the world. Because if you were going to remove yourselves from the sexual of the world, you would yeah. not be in the world anymore. I'm talking about in this church. You should be way more critical of the sexual practices in here than you ever are about what's going on out there. Yeah. We should be self-critical first and foremost. Like I could, The culture would get better around us if we took that serious. If we were like, all right, there's a plank in all the eyes out there, there's a giant log sticking out of my eye, Jesus yes. says. Spirit, help me get this log out before I ever go and tell other people about the wood in their eye. You gotta help us with this. Here's the sixth thing, and this is just, I don't know what this is gonna look like, but I've, I sense it. We will together be prayerfully cautious of the culture. Meaning, we don't just walk into the culture and embrace everything. And we live in this, like, what if 2020 and the melee that that was was not like the pinnacle of crazy, but like the forward to the book that we're now walking into? Like, 2020 was a mess. And what if it was just a little taste of what we have to walk into as Christians in this new cultural moment? Whew! Jesus, take me home quick. (laughs) Like, a, think of all the stuff we're going to navigate, and it's not going to be navigated with YouTube two-minute clips. It's going to be navigated together in community in prayer. Like, I think of global economy and all that goes into that. I don't have answers, but I'm told that I got to think about who makes my genes because it affects someone here, and I got. I, well, let's pray together because I need to know how to be better in that area. So I just buy 25 and 30 bucks. <laughs> Artificial intelligence. Robots are doing more and more. We just, yep. Yeah, robots can raise my children in a decade or so. Can we sum up that, church? we prayerfully think about what is technology and all that it can do? Like I think of infertility and all that goes into what men and women can do to actually have a baby. It's not clear cut like And the answer is not judging fingers. It's prayerfully coming together in community. Think of all the media choices our kids have and we have. Like we should be in small groups. We should be with people. We should be at men's group and women's group asking, how do I navigate this? And then prayerfully together say, let's think about how cautious we need to be as Christians walking forward in that. That's what I hope for. And then lastly, we will do our job And he will do his job. So I graduated from seminary a couple years ago. And seminary put a lot of this in me. Like this realization that the gospel is bigger than I had given the credit for. That my life mattered more than I thought it did. That the church's role in society was a bigger deal than I had expected. All this like amped up, ready to go. And the same with all the people in the seminary class it was this four-year program, four year program Same 15 people And I remember one of the last classes we had We're all fired up, we're ready to go Tackle the world Yes, we are going to transform society And our professor, Mike Godin Said, I would not use the word transform Mike, you taught us this You taught us to be passionate About making a difference in this world He says, but that's never the word Jesus uses Jesus kind of summarizes down our job here on earth. Right before the ascension, and he leaves. He says, you will receive my power when the Spirit comes upon you, Acts 1.8, And you will be my witnesses. Period. End of Jesus statement for the church. You will be my witnesses. What's our job as the church of Jesus Christ? To transform society? When possible. But the banner we place above this place. We are witnesses to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We are going to do our best. We're going to put our heads down and create culture where we can. We're going to self-critique a lot. We're going to celebrate and high-five other Christians doing it different than us. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Period. End of sleep. But we get his power to see miracles done. To see persecution overcome. We are the witnesses that are filled by His power. He provides the power. We show up ready to witness. This is not an easy day to be alive. But it's the day God has chosen for us to be His church. And we're to be His witnesses by His power. let Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for even the sweet joy of babies reminding us of the good in this world and the optimism in this world. We need to be reminded of just how much you're at work here. I know for me, I get cynical. I forget that you wrote the story. You're the hero. You're the author. You'll finish this story well. But God, as your church, we also want to enter into this story faithfully not in our own will, not in our own power, not in our own strength, not in our own wisdom, but with that which you provide. So God, help us as your church to be a faithful witness to this cultural moment that you've placed us in. And God, that's going to look different in the different homes represented here, the different personalities represented here. God, I want to root for each other. And I want to encourage one another. And I want to be for one another as we press forward together. So God, help us. Just create in us a unified spirit to press forward together. It's in Jesus' a prayer? pray. Amen.